0: Hello and welcome back to Mugshots, where we look into the lives of some of the most influential people in the world and ask what drives them and what made them who they are. I'm Michael Crick, and today we're looking at someone who stepped onto the world stage as an enigma and has been pretty much an enigma ever since. Someone the West thought they could do business with, but who may instead go down as the most dangerous leader of the 21st century, conceivably, of all time.
1: He's simply saying, well, Russia's not going to stand in a queue with a bunch of countries that don't matter.
0: Putin's trajectory really has
2: been informed by a quest for security in a world that he regards as being intrinsically insecure, precarious and dangerous.
3: There isn't actually a great deal of mystery about what Mr Putin thinks about Russia and about the world. There's quite often a lot of doubt about what he'll actually do
0: When the ailing Russian president Boris Yeltsin appointed Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin as acting president of the Russian Federation in August 1999, the West thought he was a malleable regional leader, a mere Yeltsin loyalist. Yes, Putin was a former head of the FSB, a successor to the KGB, but then everyone had a murky past in 1990s Russia. Successive American administrations would underestimate the brooding, inscrutable Russian leader George W. Bush, even referred to him by the pet name Poot." But the Moscow leader would slowly outmaneuver the West, using President Assad's war on his own people in Syria to reassert Russia in the Middle East, pumping out disinformation and deniable cyber war attacks annexing the Ukrainian region of Crimea with impunity in 2014, even interfering in a US election, though details are still shrouded in mystery, to help the Putin-friendly Donald Trump. In February 2022, he took his boldest step yet, an unprovoked and merciless war on the rest of Ukraine, and he threatened to go nuclear if the West opposed him. Putin's barbarous, Special Military Operation, hasn't gone according to plan, though, with up to 200,000 Russians reported to have been killed or wounded in what is, so far, a stalemate. But their president has shown little remorse. Indeed, he's doubled down. He's torn up the START nuclear treaty with the West and blamed Ukraine and NATO for the war he started. So what brought Vladimir Putin to this perilous moment? One clue, perhaps, is in a speech he gave to the Russian people in 2005. The demise of the Soviet Union, Putin told them, was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century, a tragedy which left tens of millions of our fellow citizens and countrymen beyond the fringes of Russian territory. Now, in Ukraine, Putin seems determined to bring those people... Russian or not, back into the Ruski Mir, the Russian world, whether they like it or not. With me, to help explain this most inexplicable man, are two experts. Laurie Bristow was Britain's number two in Moscow from 2007 to 2010. The UK ambassador there between 2016 and 2020. Four fraught years, during which Russia was accused of using Novichok, to poison the former Russian intelligence officer and MI6 agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury, as well as two British nationals, one of whom died. Laurie, welcome. Do you think Putin himself ordered the Salisbury attack?
3: Hello. Uh, it's very, very difficult to get a sense of exactly how decisions are taken within the Russian system. Um, I mean the Kremlin these days is a pretty opaque place, and uh, what what a lot of us i think um end up falling back on um is very you know versions of updated versions of Kremlinology trying to work out from quite little evidence what we think is actually going on but at the heart of this question, I think it's the point that you know the the Russian security state, its intelligence agencies are disciplined organizations they work to a president who is Uh, He's a former KGB man. Some would say there's no such thing as a former KGB man. He sees the world through a certain prism. Um, I think it's simply inconceivable that attacks of that sort would go ahead without direction from the top. I mean, you didn't meet him much
0: because he doesn't meet people very often, but you did have to go and present your credentials in, in 2016. I mean, did you think this is an evil man, a sort of, you know, another
3: Stalin? Yeah. So Russia's conduct over you know, the last 20 or so years under um, Mr. Putin's rule, I mean, it really speaks for itself. So you know what we've seen um, is a, you know, a rising um, willingness to do really quite dangerous things, to confront the West, to pursue what Putin sees as Russia's interests in some pretty you know, provocative ways. Um, and personally, I, you know, I think the behavior does speak for itself. I'm not sure that for me to attach labels would help us very much what I think helps us more is to understand what he thinks he's doing, why he's doing it, how that impacts on our interests and what we need to do, frankly, to protect ourselves in those circumstances.
0: Now, also with us is Mark Galliotti, uh, an expert on Russian security affairs and crime. And among other books, he's written a short volume called We Need to Talk About Putin, published in 2019. He has the distinction also of being banned from entering uh, Russian territory. Hello, Mark. Hello there. Tell us, why why were you banned? (laughs) Well, I mean,
2: the the formal statement from the Russian foreign ministry says that I I was banned for my activities hostile to the Russian state and people. Um, It has to be said that while I absolutely have have been pretty hostile to the Russian state, I regard myself as rather more of a friend to the Russian people than than Vladimir Putin himself. But the point is, look, they they don't really provide details. Uh, It's probably the only time I've been on the same list as, say, the director general of the BBC. And although I would love to spin a narrative that presents me as a man who Keeps Putin awake at night, worrying, and he's decided that no Galliotti must not be allowed to re- return to the Russian Federation. I mean, in in reality, it was clearly they were looking for a list of people for a sort of purposes of, of tit for tat, barring and some, you know, probably some overworked junior staffer at the Russian Foreign Ministry was told to come up with a list of twenty nine or so Brits who, in recent times, had been relatively high profile, outspoken against the regime. And there you go. I happen to be
0: one of the ones who on whom this person's eye are lit. Now, the subtitle of your book is How the West Gets Him Wrong. In what way did the West get him wrong? And I mean, is it possible that the West got him right and that you got him wrong? Oh, of course not. No. Um, yeah,
2: I mean, seriously, <laughs> look, clearly there, there, there is both hubris and marketing in that subtitle. But I think very much look, the essence of that book was to take a whole bunch of commonly circulated and, I think, rather problematic myths about Putin. because the funny thing is this, in many ways, Putin is a very boring, drab, gray figure. He 's certainly not larger than life. in many ways he 's much smaller than life. And in that respect, though, I think it's precisely that he became something of a kind of Rorschach ink blot. In which people saw what they were looking for. so you know, some people see this phenomenally astute grandmaster of geopolitical four-dimensional chess, regarding him as somehow always being ahead of the West. Others see him as some ruthlessly committed ideologue, whereas in fact, what I see is a thuggish opportunist. Who happened to be in the right place at the right time, and to be sure did have some particular skills in knowing whom to cultivate, whom to flatter, whom to bully and you know that got him where he is today, but I mean as we 've also seen i mean his his real skills in terms of managing his country have been dramatically lacking, and the historical legacy that he will leave behind is a disastrous one so i think this is it it and really it was more than anything else an attempt to cut him down to size so we didn't treat him as being more
0: formidable than he actually was and is well other people saw him in other ways in the west but he wasn't always seen as a, a as a murderous tyrant i mean in, until recently western leaders would rub shoulders with him at global summits and other events and incredibly in his early days as president putin even asked about joining NATO. I spoke to George Robertson, now Lord Robertson, the former Labour Defence Secretary, who was Secretary General of NATO between 1999 and 2003. George Robertson, you met Putin during your time as uh, Secretary General of NATO. What was he like in those days?
1: Even over the... uh... The three years, four years that I knew him, he changed quite markedly. I think I was probably among his first foreign visitors. And at that time, he was sort of uncertain, a little bit self-conscious. His head was down, if you remember pictures at the time, because he'd been pitchforked into being president very quickly by Yeltsin uh, standing down in Hogmanay and he being prime minister for only a few months and suddenly becomes the president of Russia. At that time, you still felt you were with a very determined individual. He said, among other things, I want Russia to be part of Western Europe. He said, I believe that's our destiny. He said, these guys, uh, waving at the people at the rest of the table, the famous big white table, he said, they don't agree with me, but I want to do it. Step by step, I want to... uh, uh, reengage with the world, and I think he meant that. I think he clearly meant that at the at the time. So he was sort of looking at the table rather than directly at you, but you realised that you were with somebody who had a determination uh, about the future. So when he said, "When
0: are you going to invite me to join NATO?", did you take that as meaning, "Oh, he wants to join NATO. Better get the application forms out," or was it? him saying, when are you going to be nice to me? When are you going to treat me as an equal? When are you going to treat me like you?
1: I think it was a test. After all, he had already been saying it in public. It didn't come as a big surprise. But when he asked the question, I said, well, we don't invite countries to join NATO. You know, countries apply for membership of NATO. At which point he simply said, well, Russia's not going to stand in a queue with a bunch of countries that don't matter. Over the time that I met him, and I met him nine times during my my time at NATO, you began to see that he wanted a degree of equality with the NATO country, but eventually it was equality with America. What was Putin like? I mean, you know, was there an
0: air of menace about him? Did you, I mean, if you were to uh, meet him now, I think for most people it would be a you know quite a frightening experience. But was he sort of amiable? Was he friendly? Was he easy to get on with? Or did you think, you know, behind uh, the pleasantries, if there are any, there is actually an evil autocrat here?
1: You always knew that this was a man of the KGB. He'd always been in the KGB. and Before he became prime minister, he was head of the KGB. But unlike other ex-KGB people, he retained that reserve that comes from somebody who's been... Uh, intelligence and intelligence all his life, and and knows how to control things, and he'd taken back control of Russia from the forces that uh, Yeltsin had allowed to go free. So, although I'm one of the few people in the world who can tell jokes made by Vladimir Putin or humorous uh, anecdotes about. Vladimir Putin, um, and, and there are not many of us left in the world today, and there won't be any in the future, I would think. You never felt that, you know, you could actually sort of go to the pub and, you know, have a chin wag over, over a pint.
0: Is there anything you can uh, tell us about that, that lighter side of dealing with Putin?
1: Well, the, at, the, at the NATO-Russia summit meeting, at the end of the Tour de table. so all, all of the, the 20 heads of state and government got three minutes to basically make their your know, presentation, and they were all very highly disciplined. And at the end of it, you know, you think that's fine, and that was going to be it. And we were going to lunch and discussion over lunch. Putin put his hand up, and I thought to myself, "Oh my God, you know, if he gets another speech, they'll all want another speech, and the timetable will go." But anyway, I had to say, President Putin, you've uh, you've got the floor. So he said, "Well, he said, I I noticed." Mr. Secretary-General, you've told us that you are the chairman of the North Atlantic Council and you are the chairman of the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Council and you are now the chairman of the NATO-Russia Council, I would like to make the suggestion that NATO headquarters be renamed the House of Councils. (laughs) Now, for the Russian speakers on this podcast, the Russian word for councils is Soviets. So the interpreters were telling the people around the table... I propose you call the NATO headquarters the House of Soviets. And I saw the uh, the Polish delegation looking bemused at this, and I said, I declare that was a joke. And everybody laughed at the table. And, and And it had been designed by him to be a joke. Vladimir
0: Putin's journey to power began in obscurity and hardship. He was born in 1952 in post-war Leningrad, what's now St Petersburg again, a city still recovering from the destruction of the Second World War. He was the third son of a navy conscript, also called Vladimir, and his wife Maria, a factory worker. Both his older brothers had died, one, during the Nazi siege, and the family suffered hunger, cold, poverty and crime, and their block was infested with rats, which Vladimir enjoyed chasing. Mark, how important was... Putin's Leningrad roots and childhood to the man we know today?
2: Well, this bit obviously begins to sort of wander into the realms of, of amateur psychology, but you ask uh, and I will answer. I mean, I, I feel that so much of, of Putin's trajectory really has been informed by a quest for security in a world that he regards as being intrinsically insecure, precarious and dangerous, I mean, When he was a kid, and he was a small kid, um, but nonetheless, you know, he, he ran with street gangs. He s- first started learning martial arts precisely to feel secure on, on what was still actually at, the, at those points, you know, pretty rough streets. And when he was still a school kid, that's the point where he first went to the, the Bolshoi Dom, the big house, which is the headquarters of the KGB in what was then Leningrad. A building which, frankly, is as steeped in blood as any other, because this was also the headquarters back in Stalin's time of the of the secret police. But nonetheless, he actually voluntarily went there and approached a rather bemused KGB person there and said, "How can I join?" And was basically told, "Look, run along, Sonny, go do your degree first, and then maybe we'll we'll talk." And even then, he said, "Well, what degree should I do?" And the guy said, "Law." But the point is that look there's no real evidence that Putin was eager at that point to be the sword and shield of the Communist Party, as the KGB's sort of motto and logo was. But rather, it was on the one hand, because he was sort of steeped in the kind of Soviet espionage, films and TV series, which he himself said, you know, gave you the sense that one person could be the pivot on which the world moves. But also, to be blunt, he was looking to join the biggest gang in town. And for a a kid from a family with no particular political connections or whatever, this was the the best opportunity, frankly, to to make it into the Soviet elite. And I think that's really what, what appealed to Putin, a very kind of pragmatic search for prosperity, security and elevation. And in his case, that meant the KGB.
0: Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made
2: false statements on New York business records.
1: This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality.
2: We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct.
0: This is the story of his first week in court, told through the transcripts. Listen now to The Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Laurie, you wrote an article about Putin the other day. And when you were in Moscow and indeed back here in London dealing with national security issues, looking at Putin's psychology, what do you think were the leading influences from his
3: past life on the character of this man? the nature of the formative experiences in people's lives, you know, that of uh, Vladimir Putin, but also in you know, other Russians, actually, um, of uh, a similar age. Um, and the other is to think about the stories um, that nations tell themselves about their own history and about their own place in the world. So the first of those, I think you know, the formative experiences that I'd focus in on, uh, first of all, it's uh, Putin's um, experience as a you know, young, relatively junior KGB officer in Dresden, um As the uh, as the German Democratic Republic was collapsing around him, uh, I of course remember that period as one of this just unbelievably uh, exciting and positive uh, change in the world that I had grown up in. I think his understanding of that was rather different from the accounts that have come uh, come to us of of how he saw that period. The other, of course, you know, really big set of formative experiences were those of the nineties. That's an experience of him being um, a staffer to Anatoly Sobchak, trying to make the books balance, trying to get food into St. Petersburg um, and living through, you know, the the fear, the fall in living standards, the loss of prestige and all the rest of it, um, of a country that was going through all the turnarounds um, of the 1990s. Um, And in the latter part of the 1990s, you know, having a a president, um, you know, who was, drunk quite a lot of the time, you know, who kept himself in power by some fairly dubious means. Um, and so when Putin was elevated to the Kremlin, um, a sense that actually he was going to restore order and respect for Russia in all that context. The thing about the stories that t- people tell themselves and that nations tell themselves is no less important. So uh, with the Great Patriotic War, as it's known in Russia, I think the really important thing for Westerners to understand about this is this is one of the very few things in Russia's recent history of which all Russians are genuinely proud. I it's something that's been used to build a sense of nationhood. It's been used to build, also, frankly, a sense of geopolitical entitlement. And now, of course, it also underwrites um, a large part of the early justification for the attack on Ukraine. So, the the invasion of Ukraine this time last year um, was justified by the wholly absurd. Claim that you know, Ukraine had been taken over by Nazis and therefore um, you know, Russia needed to do something about that.
0: Now, Alexander Sobchak, you, you mentioned there, was the, the mayor of uh, St. Petersburg in the 90s. And Putin had left the KGB in 1991. And by 1999, he was first acting president. Uh, eight years. How do you rise so quickly in just eight years, Mark?
2: Essentially, Putin understood that the best way to move in those circumstances, particularly when it, sort of the whole nature of the state was changing, was to become indispensable to the right people. I mean, as, as, as Laurie has rightly mentioned, he very much sort of quickly moved to become Anatoly Sobchak's right hand, his enforcer when need be, the person who on behalf of the City government talked to a whole variety of interlocutors, from international corporations to organised crime, and you know, when need be, he was he was the bag carrier as as well. And this very much became, I think, sort of his his main calling card. His, the, the main reason why people were aware of him, he, you know, at a time of of chaos and uncertainty, he was the self-effacing but essentially efficient person who was happy to be everyone's be- best deputy. And I think that that's matters because then, you know, when in due course Subchak's going to lose an election and Putin is out of work, but he very quickly picks up more in, in Moscow. And again, as the, the deputy to people who quite frankly are often deeply, deeply corrupt, but he's the guy whom they can trust to clear up the messes, to, to be discreet, and to ensure that the money keeps rolling in. I mean, and obviously, at this time, a fair amount of money sticks to his fingers, too. But the point is that, you know, he, at a time when everyone else seems to be on, on the make, he has an understanding of, shall I say, the appropriate levels of corruption and how to be a loyal deputy. And that's really what gets him the attention of the people around Yeltsin, who, you know, they're looking for a successor. They realize that, that Boris Yeltsin exactly is no longer really capable of running the country. And they want someone who they think will be efficient, um, able to walk unassisted, will be a plus, but also whom above all who they think will be a, a loyal representative who will actually protect their interests? They're looking for—I wouldn't say quite a figurehead, but but nonetheless, essentially, they're looking for their man. And look, this turns out in many ways to be a a serious misunderstanding of the situation because once Putin is in the top job, he very quickly makes it clear that he's not planning on on being anyone's factotum. But nonetheless, that's how he rose. He rose as as the efficient, discreet
0: deputy who would always have his principles back. Now, um, Laurie, you went to Moscow in in 2007, by which time the period where relations between the West and Putin were good to start with, things had started to change. And then, of course, you had the invasion of uh, Georgia in 2008. How did power work in those early years of Putin? You know, to what extent did he become a dictator?
3: So I think there's a point to understand here about the trajectory both of um Putin's behavior the way that he's run Russia but also actually his views of russia and um of us frankly so um when I arrived in two thousand and seven, it was on the back of the uh, the litvinenko killing in two thousand and six. we were busy expelling people from each other's capitals um and you know we were pretty clear about what had gone on there. this had been an assassination by the fsB in the middle of London using polonium i mean you know, there's there uh, wasn't really much ambiguity about it. I think the deterioration in the relationship, though, started a bit earlier than that. Um, and there are lots of waypoints in this, but I think a really key point there in the the um, the breakdown of the bilateral relationship um, was when uh, Mr. Putin sought the, uh, sought the expulsion from the UK, the extradition back to Russia of Boris Berezovsky. Uh, so one of the people who saw himself as the kingmaker at the time of the transition from Yeltsin to Putin um, and the government in London essentially said, look, um, you know, our courts will not allow this to happen because we do not trust what you'll do, uh, what, you know, what the Russian state will do with him if we send him back. Uh, that didn't go down very well in Moscow. And I think it was one of the very serious waypoints of what subsequently happened. This isn't, though, of course, solely a story about the UK. So what we saw happen over a period of you know, um, getting on for 20 plus years um, was Progressively, assassinations um, in uh, the UK, interference in political processes. I was in uh, Moscow at the time of the 2008 invasion of Georgia. I was back in London dealing uh, with some of the aftermath of the, uh, the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and uh, Moscow stoking up of the war in the Donbass. Um, and you know, then on into what happened uh, this time last year. So what I think we've seen over that time is a hardening of Putin's view of Russia itself and Russia's place in the world and a greater willingness to do what it takes to um, uh, you know, to assert Russia's interests he sees them. Um, what we've also seen in that time, I think, is um, a, um, uh, a, a greater understanding in the West of what actually is happening um, in Russia and what it means for our interests. So I, I always used to say you know, for, for many years, There isn't actually a great deal of mystery about what Mr. Putin thinks about Russia and about the world. There's quite often a lot of doubt about what he'll actually do. But if you want to know what he's thinking, listen to what he's saying. And he's been saying it loud and clear for a number of years. Um, There's a particular um, uh, point in Munich, uh, the Munich Security Conference um, in 2007, where he comes out and says it. Um, And what he's saying is U.S. unilateralism has gone too far. It's got to stop and it's going to be made to stop. There was then a period of about four years when, uh, of course, under the Constitution, Putin had to stand back, become prime minister, put Medvedev um, into the Kremlin. And at the time, you know, we all believed that Russia wasn't fundamentally changing, but at least there was the opening for a slightly different sort of relationship with Russia. Um, And um, we were getting those messages from the Russian side as well. It turned out not to be the case um, you know, things pretty rapidly went bad after uh, Putin went back to return to the Kremlin. Um, and, um, you know, we've been on a pretty much a downhill um, slope since then. In your bookmark, Mark, you, you
0: paint a picture of a, a complicated picture of, of power in Russia and the way it works. You point out, for instance, that You know, there is a lot of civil society. People can set up pressure groups and organizations and, you know, oppose what uh, the government's doing at a lower level. Okay, they can't overturn the presidency in an election, or at least they haven't managed to so far. There's investigative journalism has been allowed to carry on, although perhaps not now during the war period. But it is a complicated picture. I mean, you say at one point, Putin is a merciful autocrat. He doesn't want to kill you uh, unless you force him to. <laughs> now, and that uh, murder is certainly not his regime's tool tool of choice. Tell us more about, you know, the the complications, the nuances of the way in which Putin has operated over the last quarter of a century. Yes,
2: I mean, in many ways, this was something of a, of a postmodern authoritarianism in that, you know, we think of authoritarianisms and we tend to think of your sort of classic old style dictators ruling by secret police, dragging people off in, in the middle of the night. Well, Putin's regime for so long, and, and exactly as you said, I mean, this is it has changed dramatically since February 2022. But nonetheless, you know, up to that point, to a degree, it was still one in which there was so much of the the veneer of democracy and participation, and indeed, Putin himself seems to place considerable store in the forms of the law, the forms of legitimation through elections, and such like i mean you mentioned for example the, the fact that um, you know, he had the period in which he was out of office as, as Prime Minister. Now, he was still running the country. He was, as it were, the president behind the scenes, but just not the president in in name. But still, rather than just simply ignore term limits, he felt he needed to, to go through the motions. Well, likewise, yes, there there was still scope for Both the certain sham democracy, you know, there there were these opposition parties that were not really opposition parties, the communists, the liberal Democrats, who are by by no means either liberal or democratic, who would in some ways be there precisely to look so deeply unappealing that they made Putin's United Russia Party look relatively moderate and, and, and relatively sensible. And likewise, Putin himself liked to be able to kind of contrast himself with, with, with other figures. Of course, when push comes to shove, every election was was rigged. Every attempt at bringing genuine opposition politics to Russia was, was crushed one way or the other. But ordinary Russians were, were given, shall we say, safety valves. They could absolutely they they could organize, they they, they could campaign, as long as they, they pretended that it was always just on local and very specific issues. Take environmental issues. You had a growing tide of Russians who were very bothered about the, the deep levels of environmental de- degradation that were taking place in, in Russia. And and they could they could mobilize, they could organize, but it always had to be about the specific issue, this particular rubbish dump that was leaching chemicals into the water table or whatever. And they had to pretend that it was just about that, as if that was an aberration of the system, rather than recognizing that it was because of the, the corruption and the essential uncaring bureaucratization of, of the government as a whole. So you know, he, he understood that actually the best way in, in, in the modern media age was was to give the population bread and circuses. And that includes a certain semblance of democracy, as long as in practice you, you control the levers of power. Now, that has actually been been de- decaying even before the invasion of Ukraine. I mean, in many ways, the this, this system had sort of almost played itself out and had begun to basically lose even the kind of pretense of legitimacy. And obviously now we're in a, increasingly what is in effect a martial law regime. But for a long time this is the this is one of the paradoxes of, of Putinism. It was an absolutely controlled political system, and yet one which chose to allow sectors of
0: activity to be open to a certain degree of civil society. Laurie, is Russia stuck with Putin now? I mean there is officially meant to be a presidential election next year, but Does the war mean that he's going to have to carry on, uh,
3: possibly for life? I think this is a really difficult question now. So uh, it's deeply bound up with what we think might happen um, in the war um, in in the course of this year. So as of today, um, I mean, my take on that is I don't actually see a route to rapid and complete military victory for either side, unless and until something dramatic changes um, on the battlefield nor do I see the basis for a negotiation. I mean, you know, where do you negotiate when one side wants to eradicate the other side and the other side doesn't want to be eradicated? I mean, you know, it's, it's possible that at some stage they might get into a discussion about a ceasefire, but that's a wholly different thing with its own uh, risks and problems. So what I think that means for the election next year is this. So first of all, it's not an election. I mean, in, in any Russian presidential election, there's one candidate and one voter. Um, And, you know, all the rest, as as Mark says, is um, cosplay essentially around that.
0: But it might have been an opportunity if there wasn't the war going on for him to say, right, that's it. I've done enough. Um, But we're clearly not going to have that, are we?
3: Well, so that I think is the really big question. I mean, I thought for some years now that there's really only one serious question um, in Russian domestic politics. and It's the question of the succession. So how, in what terms um, and to whom and when uh, will Mr Putin pass on power? Um, I think he went into the war probably thinking that it would be a short victorious war that would create better options, you know, create uh, a more controlled environment in which to address that question. But what I think he's got now is he's stuck. Um, You know, that he needs to decide fairly soon whether we're looking at another term, which would take him, you know, towards his mid late seventies and Russia towards a period of rule by one man, you know, that is matching Stalin essentially. Um, or whether to try to organise a succession. And the thing that you need about a succession is you need a single candidate that has the unity of the security elite behind it. And I think what he's done is actually massively complicate that set of calculations for himself and the people around him.
0: And he also needs somebody who'll um, give him a pardon for a possible prosecution in the same way that he did with the Elsin.
3: Well, I think we've gone a long a long way beyond um domestic considerations here i mean it's It's really hard to imagine Mr. Putin ever being able to travel outside Russia without being protected by the status of head of state. but within Russia, I think you know that the the crucial thing here um is that we could be heading into a really quite turbulent time in Russia itself. Is it possible, mark? one or two things might happen that he, he that he
0: says, well, that's it, uh, I give up, or is it possible? That he does something far worse than that, and that he, you know, leads us all into a dreadful nuclear war and Armageddon.
2: Well, let me f- start by inserting a sort of unfashionable note of optimism, in that look, Putin is not some kind of ideological fanatic. Uh, yes, he believes various things, often toxic and ridiculous and ahistorical uh, things, but nonetheless, he is at heart a rational actor it's just that obviously rational actors can do deeply stupid things based on what they believe and what they've been told. So I think that the chances of him knowingly or deliberately bringing the the world to to, to nuclear Armageddon, I I, I think are as close to to nil as, as we could calculate. Now, there is an outside possibility that he might try to use the so-called non-strategic, what we used to call tactical, smaller scale nuclear weapons in Ukraine, whether for battlefield reasons or to try and intimidate Kyiv or the West into giving him some kind of a deal. That's highly unlikely, not least because of the way that the Chinese and the Indians have made it very, very clear how angry and dismayed they would be by breaking of the nuclear taboo for their own reasons. Um, but it's, it's, it's not one we can totally to rule out. But look, this is a man who ultimately, even more than Ukraine, what matters to him is his own survival. And I think that if nothing else, we shouldn't assume the people whose job it is to actually launch the missiles would necessarily follow. But remember, the Russian elite is not made up of Putinists. It is made up of ruthless, pragmatic <laughs> opportunists and kleptocrats. Who were perfectly happy to follow Putin for so long because it was very, very much in their interests. And now to a degree they're stuck with him. And so I think this speaks to, to the second element, and I absolutely agree with Laurie, that it's very hard at the moment just to, to see Putin stepping away from power. I mean, if nothing else, the temptation from his successors, whatever promises they give Putin at the time to essentially consider him to be the scapegoat would be very great. And it's very instructive, I think, what we we saw actually in January of last year in Kazakhstan. You had the the longtime dictator of Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev, who had decided it was time to retire, but had created for himself a a nice constitutional position as chair of the powerful Security Council for life. And he had handpicked a successor to actually do the boring job of running the country for him what happened well in due course his successor turned against him and largely sort of purged Nazarbayev's partisans and Nazarbayev himself we were told chose to step down from his position his full-life position for the good of the country I mean in in situations like this this is not a law-based state you're Fortune, your fate, quite possibly your physical existence, depends on your successor. Now, Putin himself was in many ways actually quite an honest and loyal successor to to Yeltsin. He certainly looked after Yeltsin, and so long as they didn't tangle with him, the people of the so-called family who were were close to, to Yeltsin. But Putin is also not a man who trusts easily, and it's very hard to see him being willing to actually hand everything, everything that he is, to someone else and just simply hope that they follow the deal that was struck.
0: Laurie Bristow and Mark Galliotti, thanks very much indeed for that fascinating insight into the Russian leader. It looks like both Russia and the rest of the world are going to be dealing with this man for quite a long time. That's it for Mugshots for this week. Do join us again next week when we'll be exploring another of the important figures Who shape our world?
3: Mugshots was written and produced by Michael Crick, Neil Fern, and Jack Gerbitson. Additional research by Matilda Walters. Audio production by Robin Lieburn and me, Alex Reese. Music by Jade Bailey. The group editor for Podmasters is Andrew Harrison. Mugshots is a Podmasters production.